All right, so last week, uh, as we continue in our series through uh, Christ and culture and how as Christians we interact with uh, the world around us and what that looks like biblically, uh, we began a discussion on um, the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man or the kingdom of this, this world, um, the common kingdom, we said. Um, and uh, I tried to uh, give us some examples of where uh, we see um, these, uh, these two uh, kingdoms talked about in the scriptures. And we discussed the fact that as Christians living in this world, we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. But we are also citizens of the common kingdom. And so we have a dual citizenship. And as a result, um, we have responsibilities to both. Our citizenship to the heavenly kingdom um, is most important. It supersedes anything else. Um, And so we have an obligation to look to God's word as our first and primary authority. And everything else is subservient to that. Uh, But as citizens of this earth, we have responsibilities as well. And we looked at the places where Jesus himself directed us to to submit and to obey the authority of uh, this kingdom. And not just obeying authority, but uh, participating in uh, this kingdom as good citizens. And uh, so along the way, we've been, as we've looked at our interactions with culture, one of the things that has guided us is... um, is this idea of the Israelites as they were in exile and God telling them while they were in exile that they would live there as a people who were working and praying and striving for the good of the city because when the city around them prospered and did well, then they did well. And this wasn't on their land. This wasn't in the place that God had set aside for them. This was while they were in exile. Um, And so uh, we, very much like them, are, in essence, in exile. We are a people living in this world as pilgrims, as sojourners, as travelers, as pilgrims, all different ways the Bible talks about us. And so we are here to live as uh, faithful citizens for the good of the city. Um, So those are some of the things we looked at last week, and we talked about just briefly how... um, how misunderstanding that can result in a lot of things um, that are really practical that can go, can go wrong um, because we, uh, we either mesh the two kingdoms together or we try too hard to separate all the overlap between the two. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of problems that can come into play. Um, so what I want to do this morning is first start with a discussion about how the kingdom of God advances and where we see in the New Testament the talk of God's kingdom um, advancing in the world. Um, and so we'll, we'll look at a few uh, passages um, and hopefully have some good discussion here. So in every case in the New Testament, the expression of Christ's universal lordship is explained uh, not in terms of social power or political power, uh, but in terms of a proclamation of the truth. And so whenever we see this language about Jesus' authority, it's tied to a proclamation of the truth and the preaching of the gospel to all nations. 
Um, and as Jesus said, that we're preaching the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that has been commanded by God. Um, so <coughs> calling on all men everywhere to uphold the commandments to, uh, of, of God. So it's the preaching of the gospel and the biblical administration of the discipline of the church, which Jesus calls the keys to the kingdom. So when Paul writes about the fall in Romans chapter 8, he's talking about uh, all of creation having fallen. What does he say? What, when he says um, not just man has fallen, but all creation has fallen, what does he say about that? What is creation doing? Groaning. Yeah, creation, all of creation is groaning, has this longing, this expectation for what? The resurrection. And tied to the resurrection is a renewal, right? That we have the new heavens and new earth. There's a renewal of all things. So the transformation that the creation groans for um, is contingent upon the proclamation of the gospel and the revelation of the Son of God. Um, Jesus was uh, talking to... um, Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. Remember this from Luke when we looked at this? And he said something very important to them because uh, in the midst of this, he was talking about when does all of this sort of come to an end? When do we see uh, everything fulfilled? And there's insinuated in there this idea that the gospel will first be proclaimed to all the nations. And then the end shall come. So we see uh, that the full, uh, final consummation of the kingdom is contingent upon this idea that the gospel has gone out to all of the nations. So the easy answer to the question, how does the kingdom of God advance in the world? It's quite simple, through the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, through the proclaiming of truth, and in doing so, God is saving people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And only by believing the gospel and holding fast to Jesus can anyone secure his or her participation in that kingdom. And so we're only members of the kingdom of God because of Christ. Um, Let's look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Someone read for us verses 20 and 21. Great. Okay, so we see several things here. First, our citizenship is in heaven as primary citizens of the kingdom of God. And from that, we are awaiting Christ's return. And in his return, he will transform our bodies, our physical here and now bodies, to be like his glorious body. So, no more pain, suffering, sin, and death. Um, And that is all by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And so, Jesus reigns and rules over all things, even now. (laughs) So, 
we see this idea of renewal, all things made new in Christ by the power of his reign and rule and by the power of his resurrection. Um, we can see the same thing. Oh, you don't have to go there in Ephesians 4, but Paul explains that the fruit of Christ's ascension um, in which he was made the Lord of all things uh, is expressed in his pouring out of the gifts of the church in ministry. Um, so he talks there in Ephesians 4 about he gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body into Christ that the saints grow up in every way into him who is head. That's Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. And this is what Paul presupposes when we look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So look there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And someone read verses 21 through 23. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. Good, thank you. So, what is Paul saying here? Okay, good. So, in Christ, all that Christ has belongs to us, right? That our inheritance is Christ's inheritance. Um, and in this way, we rightly speak of, um, of Jesus as our elder brother, right? Uh, that we are adopted um, to be with him, and so we inherit all that he has. Um, I probably shouldn't stand on that. Um, in terms of Christ's headship, uh, what, is he, what is he the head over? Okay, us. Anything else? All, all things, right. Let's be more specific, though. In, in what uh, specific way does he exercise his headship um, most prominently? Over the church, right, exactly. So, we can say that the church is the only corporate expression of the kingdom of God in this age. In this age, as, as the people of the earth live together, the corporate expression of the kingdom of God is in the church. It's only when we're joined together as the body of Christ, the body of those who hold fast to Jesus as King, as Savior, as Lord, that we participate in the kingdom that is coming. And this is one of the reasons why um, our corporate gathering together for worship on the Lord's Day is so important. Because this is us living as sojourners in this world, coming together to participate with other citizens of the kingdom in the heavenly kingdom, that we're participating with Christ. And so uh, you hear that language when we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper specifically. These are the ordinances of the kingdom. These are things we do in which we are participating in kingdom activities, um, we're, we, are, um, we are joining ourselves with all of uh, all that's going on in heaven when we sing together. What's, when we read in Revelation what's going on in the heavenly throne room, uh, what, are, what is, between all the people and all of the angels, what are they doing? They're worshiping, but more specifically, how are they worshiping? They're singing. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they have this heavenly anthem that they sing, and, and we even see in Isaiah that they're saying it, the, the seraphim around the throne are singing it back and forth to one another. It's like this call and response and speaking of God as holy, holy, holy. And so when we gather together and we worship together as God's people on the Lord's Day, uh, we are joining in this heavenly anthem. We're joining in this heavenly chorus that has been going on from all eternity past. Um, and so that, uh, that should excite us. That should uh, give us great joy in knowing that it's not just us, Ephesus Church, a hundred or so people gathered every Sunday to, uh, to sing a few songs and pray and hear the word and, and go out, and that's just kind of us. But we're gathered, one, with all of the other uh, citizens of this earth who are members of the kingdom of God in worshiping God today, uh, but we're also joined with all of the saints, past, present, and, um, and then uh, who we will be with in the future, uh, worshiping God as well. Um, and so the church is, as Jesus explains, the ones who hold the keys to the kingdom of God. Because this is where we come to the church together uh, to experience the kingdom of God. We participate in the kingdom of God. And so although we witness to our citizenship in this kingdom in every single thing that we do in this age, um, we do it as unto the Lord. That's our witness unto the kingdom. The primary for, uh, the form that the witness of Christ's lordship takes is that of submission, service, and sacrifice in a hostile and oppressive world. And that's an important thing for us to remember. Only after believers, like Jesus, conforming to his example, set aside the, the, glo- the glory that we have been promised and take up the form of a servant and humble ourselves even to the point of death, can we be confident that God will exalt us above every, uh, every form in heaven and on earth and under the earth? It is only when we take up our role on this earth as humble servants that we will see ourselves exalted. It is, uh, it is the, um, uh, the quintessential mark of a true Christian is true humility that we are humbled even to the point of death like our Savior. Um, and from that flows all of the, uh, all of the um, virtues and uh, fruit of the Spirit in our life. Um, and, and we are made to be more like Christ in the midst of it. Only by following the, the way of the Lamb who was slain to the point of martyrdom, if necessary, do the witnesses of the Lamb conquer with him. And so we may not experience that yet here in this place, but certainly our brothers and sisters across the world are and are faithful in their proclamation of what is right and true, um, not just in word, but also as they humble themselves to the point of death. And so the call on the Christian life, and this sort of kind of gives us the answer we've been asking for several weeks now about which form of cultural engagement do we, uh, do we look to 
as Christians. Well, the call of the Christian life is not to establish the lordship of Christ through conquest or through cultural transformation, uh, but to witness to Jesus' lordship by imitating him in sacrificial service. And so remember the four ways we talked about how do Christians interact with culture? Well, some just pull away from it altogether and isolate and don't want anything to do with it. So it's like M. Night Shyamalan's uh, The Village. If you've seen that, we kind of build our own culture uh, out in the trees and we pretend like nothing else exists around us that is of any worth. That's not it. Uh, We see that very clearly in John 17, Jesus' prayer for his people. I don't pray that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them while they are in the world and keep them from evil. And that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer that the Lord would keep us from the evil one. So that's not it. Uh, The other is just fully immersing ourselves in the culture without asking any questions. Um, And that's uh, any, you know, the theological uh, liberal de jour. Um, They're going to embrace that idea. Uh, If the culture's doing it, we should do it. And God, uh, God is over it all, and so he must ordain it. So we just jump in uh, full steam ahead. Well, that's not it either. We need to be asking questions and thinking through all of the principles that we've outlined thus far. Uh, the third was uh, perhaps we're in this world to transform it, to change it, and to make this kingdom to be uh, like the kingdom of heaven. And in doing so, eventually we'll usher in the day when the kingdom of heaven uh, will arrive on earth. Um, and in some ways, I could be sympathetic to that because I think it's a, a very ideal idea, um, but I think the Bible speaks to something quite differently, and that is that we are to live as citizens of this kingdom, but mostly, uh, but more importantly, I guess I could say, as more faithful citizens to the kingdom of God. So we live as faithful Christians in this world, living for the good of the city around us, but knowing that this kingdom comes to an end while our heavenly kingdom is everlasting. So we're not here to establish Christ's lordship. It has already been established. He's reigning and ruling from the throne. Um, It's not through conquest. The church doesn't advance by the sword. We're not Muslims. Uh, Our goal is to not uh, force everyone into believing what we believe because it's no true belief at all. Um, And it's not through transforming the culture externally. It is witnessing to Jesus' lordship and imitating him in sacrificial service. It is proclaiming the gospel. And as the gospel is proclaimed, the promise is that God will be saving people, their hearts will be changed, and as a result, uh, things change when people change, right? It will not be changed uh, fully and completely into what God will make it, uh, but uh, in the end, uh, there will be a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation that are citizens of the kingdom of heaven right alongside us. So that was a lot I just spit out there. Any thoughts before, uh, or questions, I guess, before we uh, move to the next part? Okay. So what, uh, let me ask this on a practical level, I guess. When we conform to Christ's example of humility, and we live as faithful Christians in a broken, uh, fallen, sinful culture. Uh, what is the effect of that? It's profound, but what is it? What are the various things that begin to happen? When we go into 
everything we do on a daily basis, and we do all things, as Paul tells us in Colossians 3, as unto the Lord, or is it 6? Colossians 6. 3? 3, yeah. Um, Onto the Lord, we do all things. Um, what is the effect? What happens? Tris? Okay, good. So uh, this is, uh, in essence, I think what Peter's getting at when he says um, that, we, uh, that we be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within us. Something's implied there, and that is uh, that someone is asking me about it, right? Uh, why is that happening? Why is someone asking me? Because they see something about my life that is very distinctly different from theirs. Okay, so, uh, so good. My, uh, so what does that mean in terms of my work, for example? What kind of worker should I be as a Christian? A good one. That's a good answer. The best one. I think that's the right answer. I should be the best worker on my job because I'm working for whom? The Lord. I'm working onto the Lord, not onto man. Sure, my, the residual effect is that my boss will be very pleased with, uh, with the outcome of my labors um, because I'm working hard and helping his bottom line, but I'm being the best possible worker, not for his benefit. Ultimately, I'm doing it because I'm working onto the Lord. I'm bringing glory to God through my labors. And so uh, that's the time when someone says, you know, all of us come here and we punch the clock and uh, we go to um, the coffee machine and spend about 15 minutes there and then we go check our email and and putz around online for another 20 minutes and then we uh, take a trip to the bathroom and swing by the water cooler. And it's, you know, I got there at 8.30, but uh, that was about 30 minutes late, but... By about 10.30, 11 o'clock, I start actually doing work. You're not that way. Why is that? And so that gives us opportunity to give a defense for the hope that's within us. It's because of Christ. I'm working onto the Lord, not onto man. Sure, I, I want to... Uh, what, what's tied to that, though? I have a responsibility to this person I work for, right? What does God's Word tell us uh, tangibly about me working for someone else. I have a responsibility to him. He is my, he or she, I guess, is my authority, right? There's an authority I need to submit to. Um, we're exchanging my work for their pay. There's a transaction taking place. So if I'm not doing what I'm asked to do, what am I doing from my employer? I'm stealing. I'm stealing from them. I'm taking something that doesn't rightfully belong to me because I'm not actually doing the work I was asked to do in order to receive it. It's theft. And so God's law, though, is what directs me to understand that. Right, what, is the, what is the common idea behind that? Does, does the common man assume that when he's not doing the job he was asked to do, um, but it gets done eventually, that all that time he wasted is theft? Not really. <laughs> I doubt it. He's just trying to find a way to get paid without getting fired. And if, uh, if that takes a, a while um, so I can drag this job out to make sure things continue on, uh, then excellent. Um, but the Christian is bound to a whole other set of principles. I'm bound to the kingdom of God. And so that's our vocation. What about... 
our interactions in the community when we are out doing our thing and our hobbies and our shopping and our interactions with our community? How does that change, Tris? Good, excellent. So we are people of, um, because we are people of the word, we are people of our word, right? My yes is yes, my no is no. And so, for example, if I'm making a contract, um, nobody should have to have any question as to whether or not I am seeking to be faithful to follow through with that contract. Now, circumstances arise which may change the terms of that, but what am I going to do when that happens? Am I, I'm not going to try and hide it or cover it up. I'm going to be very upfront and straightforward and seek to make things right. Um, so, in what I'm doing, when I give my word as a Christian, it should be yes meaning yes and no meaning no. Good. What else? What other ways? Say again. Okay. The way that we uh, treat, interact with others. What is the guiding principle in our relationships with our neighbors? That we love them. Right. That we love our neighbors, no matter who they are. Even if they are our enemies, that we love them. But what fuels that love? It's not, uh, it's not the same love that I have for my wife and children. It's not the same love I have for my brothers and sisters in Christ. But it is love. And what is that love driven by? Yes, because they are created in the image of God. And as a result, as a Christian, I've been given a desire to see them walking as faithful image bearers worshiping the one who created them. And so I'm driven by a compassion to see them worshiping the one true and living God right alongside me. And so my love for my neighbor is driven by this desire to, um, to see them come to Christ, to faithfully walk with Christ alongside me. Um, so there's all, all sorts of things that we can say about the transformation that takes place. Um, those who are Christians, for example, in government... Uh, they will recognize the lordship of Christ. They'll seek to use their influence to secure peace and justice. Um, they will be very concerned with doing things rightly and justly. Um, and it's not for self-aggrandizement. And, and it's not for um, you know, promoting themselves and getting rich and uh, isolating uh, a certain group of people away from the others who will be an elite class. Uh, but rather, they're using their authority uh, for peace, for justice, and, I believe, to protect the rights uh, in a society of the church, for the church to be able to function and operate um, as uh, a free people who can gather and experience the kingdom together. Um, Those in positions of economic power will serve those placed under them rather than dominate them. And so Christian business owners, for example, uh, they will treat their employees well. They will pay them well. They will give them good benefits. They will take care of them and check on them and make sure they're okay. And not just if they're doing their work, but how is your family? How can we serve uh, you as a, uh, as a unit to make sure that things are well taken care of? Um, husbands will sacrifice themselves for their wives in imitation of Christ, recognizing that before Christ we have equity. Uh, But in Christ, on this earth, we have a responsibility to lead, to shepherd, to protect, and to provide for. 
Um, that in and of itself is radically different from anything you will see in this world. A husband taking responsibility over his household and leading them by grace, faithfully, joyfully, patiently leading his family, not by uh, a heavy hand, but by a loving, caring, gracious, uh, patient spirit. Um, those who have been given gifts, talents, or riches will use those resources to provide not primarily for themselves, but for those who are in need. Um, providing for uh, the church and all the resources the church needs to, to do its mission, but also providing for those who are unable to provide for themselves um, in legitimate circumstances. Um, and about all of these cultural affairs in which believers engage in common with unbelievers, um, we could go on and on. Scripture has much to say. Every one of those things I just listed are, are straight uh, from Scripture. They're principles that we look at in the Bible. Um, any, uh, any thoughts on that? Or questions? You guys all tired because the time changed. Sure. Good. That's the, uh, that's the immediate danger in being a people who are set apart in the midst of a culture, right? Is that we become very quickly, easily, uh, can become judgmental and prideful. That I am different from them and so I become like the Pharisee looking at the tax collector. Thank you, Lord, that I am not like that man over there. Um, and so my heart swells with pride, and I uh, desire to make sure everyone knows I'm different, not for the Lord's sake, uh, but for my own. Sure, that's a great, great point. That's um, a very, uh, a, a very a present danger. What else? Yeah, Dan. Yeah, good. Great points. So um, you've probably heard the quote, some attribute it to St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, it's uh, up in the air who said it, but anyway, it's this statement, um, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. That's a lie. That's a terrible thing to say. That's not what the Bible says. Um, the proclamation of the gospel is a proclamation of a message. The gospel is a message. It is something that is to be heralded, proclaimed, stated. And so if there's going to be gospel transformation, the gospel needs to be propagated. And it is through the foolishness of preaching. Um, and there are various forms that that takes. And the Bible is abundantly clear that when we do that, the response is not always um, a, is something that we uh, inherently desire in ourselves, right? What is the response oftentimes? It's going to be persecution. It's going to be suffering. Um, and we see uh, examples uh, laid out of those who, by faith, uh, were walking with God in Hebrews, for example. At the end of Hebrews, it talks about those by faith who were faithful to God were, uh, had all of their land taken from them, their families taken away, they put into exile. People were killed. They were sawn in two. They were burned at the stake. They were thrown off the roof. They were boiled in vats of oil. I mean, you just go on and on. These are things that happen because people have faithfully proclaimed the gospel. And so um, 
we should not have the impression that to do this is, um, is one, to do so silently, and two, to do so um, in a way that is going to win favor with all of our neighbors. Uh, did you have something, Sam? Go ahead. Great. Excellent point. So when I go about my life living faithfully as a Christian in the world around me, I don't have to do so with a fear that if I do it wrongly, that God is going to crush me. He's going to destroy me. Um, There may be discipline for a time, um, but he does that because he loves me and wants me to be um, more faithful and more conformed to his image. So it's for my sanctification that that discipline even comes. Not uh, because he is uh, angry with me, but because he is a loving father who, uh, who rights my wrongs. And in the end, whatever those wrongs are, uh, as weighed against eternal justice, uh, Christ has paid the penalty. And so I need not pursue all that I do with fear that I will not be right with God in the end. He has made all things right in Christ for me. Good, yeah, exactly. There's a, a, great, uh, a great quote some of you probably saw on social media over the week uh, from Martin Luther. He was talking about, um, uh, as Christians in this culture, it was kind of this, these ideas we're talking about. Um, a, a good Christian uh, shoemaker doesn't make, um, you know, the, the faithfulness that he shows isn't because he puts little crosses on his shoes, but he makes the best possible product that he can. Um, that uh, what he's doing is on to the Lord, and, uh, and in that, he is winning opportunity to be, uh, to be faithful, to, um, uh, to share with others something that others will want to be a part of. Why? Because it's good, and it's, uh, it's durable, and it lasts, and it's quality, and we're not cutting corners. Um, we're trying to do the very best um, because we live for the very best, who is Christ. Yeah. Yeah, all all the gifts of God are given to us that we would look beyond the gift to the giver of that gift. And Paul's fundamental point in Romans is that um, idolatry comes when we don't look beyond the gift to the giver, but we look at the gift itself as the object of worship. Um, and so then we become idolaters. Um, and uh, that's, that's man's greatest problem is that he looks to the gift as opposed to the giver, uh, even though those gifts were intended to show us the giver.